Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Pastor... Christian Chung from Singapore recalls a story about self-control in a book he read that was entitled The Three Edwards. In the book, author Thomas Costain described the life of Renald III, a 14th century duke in what is now known as Belgium. Grossly overweight, Renald was commonly called by his Latin nickname Crassus, which means fat. After a violent quarrel, Renald's brother Edward led a successful revolt against him. Edward captured Renald, but he didn't kill him. Instead, he built a room around Renald in the Newark Castle and promised him that he could regain his title and his property as soon as he was able to leave the room. Well, this wouldn't be difficult for most people since The room had several windows, it had a door of near normal size, and none of that was locked or barred. The problem was Renald's size. To regain his freedom, he needed to lose weight, but Edward knew that his older brother wouldn't do that. And so each day he sent a variety of delicious foods to his door. Instead of dieting his way out of prison, Renald actually ended up growing fatter and fatter day by day. When Duke Edward was accused of cruelty, he had an answer. My brother is not a prisoner. He may leave whenever he so wills. Renald stayed in that room for 10 years, and he wasn't released until after Edward died in battle. But then his Health was so ruined that he died within a year of being set free from that room. A prisoner of his own appetite. Now, food may not be our problem today. We may have self-control issues with a number of other things. I don't know if that's you or not. Maybe you have mastered self-control as a spiritual gift. Maybe that is the character trait that defines you. But for many of us, we do struggle with certain vices at times. What somebody's vice may be may not be another person's vice. And so we don't often understand, well, why can't you just break this habit or or stop this thing that you perpetually keep doing? It's because we don't have the same struggles that another person does. Now, where am I going with this message this morning? It's quite simply this. Self-control is not easy, but it's necessary. It's necessary to live a life of wholeness, of hope. Self-control is the process by which we bring things under our control that we've allowed to have too much control over us. The only thing that we do not need to control and would actually be a travesty control, would be our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. He should have utter and complete control over us. 
defining who we are, what we do, and how we live. The problem with self-control isn't that we're not, that we're not self-controlled with God, it's that we allow the controls of the rest of the world to take us over. I want to read today from Psalm 4. doesn't sound like a typical place to read from when you're considering these kinds of things, but Psalm 3 and 4, the, in the very first uh, of that whole book, and it's the longest book of our Bible, the book of Psalms. Psalm 3 and 4 are actually go together. They are agreed by most scholars to have been written by David, and those two psalms are considered to have been written by David during the time of his second leave from the throne. Well, actually, his one leave from the throne, but his second time fleeing for his life. When was the first time he fled for his life? Saul, King Saul. David had been anointed king. Saul had been rejected, and yet Saul still maintained authority on the throne in Israel. And so while he waited, after he had been anointed by Samuel, he fled for his life because Saul hated him. Saul wanted David dead. He was jealous and would fly off in these bitter rages, not just toward David, but toward his own son Jonathan for befriending David. So now flash forward several years Decades even. David's now ascended the throne. He is the ruler of all of Israel. The kingdom is expanding. David is a man after God's own heart. And David finds himself, when the kings go out to battle, usually in the spring, deciding, I think I'm going to stay behind this time. I'm not going to go out to battle with my troops. My generals, my colonels, they can can handle this this time. I deserve a break. And so he sticks around, and from his palace rooftop, he sees a lady bathing on a rooftop nearby. This lady, her name is Bathsheba. Her husband Uriah is actually one one of David's soldiers out to battle. He has Bathsheba brought to him, and he sleeps with her. He's the most powerful man in the kingdom. He can do this without any repercussions. He's the highest authority other than God. But I think he had forgotten this during this time. And so David's lack of self-control, meaning he didn't do what God had desired of him, led him to a place of not only idleness, but a place of sinfulness that not only destroyed Bathsheba's life, but had her husband Uriah sent to the front lines to be murdered so he could cover up his mistake, or shall we say his lack of self-control, because Bathsheba became pregnant. And after scheming and plotting and trying to cover up the mess, the last resort was murder. And so Uriah's murdered, David takes Bathsheba as his wife, and nobody's the wiser. 
because the child she is now bearing truly is his. He's covered all the bases. And yet we read in 1 Samuel, there's a prophet in the land by the name of Nathan. And Nathan comes upon the scene, and instead of really addressing this issue directly with David, he actually gives what we would call a parable. Jesus used parables to teach in all the time. And so Nathan confronts David by telling him a story. And yet David doesn't realize this is a fictional story. He believes it's a real account of something that's happening in the kingdom. And Nathan says, there's this rich guy who owns a bunch of sheep and livestock. And then there's this poor guy that lives just down the way from him. And he has one, one lamb. And this lamb is so beloved by the family. As a matter of fact... They've taken it in almost like a pet, a member of their own family. It eats, it eats inside their home. They love it. They cuddle with it. They braid its wool. Actually, it never says they braid its wool. I just added that little fun fact. But they love this little lamb as if it's a member of the family. And then Nathan proceeds to tell David, and yet this wealthy man who owns all this livestock was going to throw a party but he didn't want to use one of his own sheep. And so he took the man's lamb, slaughtered it so he could give, give, throw this feast for his friends. David becomes incensed. Tell me who it is. Let me know. He needs to pay greatly for this. And Nathan, do you know the words? You are the man. And David recoils. <laughs> and he realizes the one person he could never hide anything from was watching the whole time. And God told Nathan the prophet to tell him, I know what you've done. And you need to make it right. And unlike Saul had done, David made it right. He fasted, he prayed, he repented. One of the greatest psalms in the book of Psalms is Psalm 51. And that's David's song of repentance. It's the one where we hear David say, Create within me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence, O Lord. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and renew a right spirit within me. It's in that psalm we read, A broken and a contrite heart, the Lord your God will not despise. David became a man after God's own heart because he confessed and repented and didn't make excuse for his sin. So now, let's flash forward a little bit more. Not too long after this, Solomon is a young man. He is the, he's not the child that was conceived in adultery. That child died within eight days after birth. But Bathsheba would conceive again. And that little boy's name would be Jedediah, or we would call him Solomon. 
Solomon would be a young boy about this time. David actually had multiple wives. Again, a different sermon for a different time. I keep saying that because we've referenced this over the past several months. Well, how come God was okay with multiple wives? He wasn't. Suffice it to say, every time they married multiple women, you could see it didn't go well. It wasn't a part of God's rule. Well, why didn't God strike them down? If God struck everyone down for everything they did wrong, would any of us be alive today? Okay, the scripture accounts exactly what's going on in the story for good or for bad. It doesn't mean that when you read it, God condones everything that's going on in there. I want you to understand that because this is where things go off the rails with false teachings or people saying, well, God's okay with this. And God, no, you don't understand the context. God's never okay with what was not a part of his original design. And one man and one woman was a part of that original design. Anything outside of that context is not what he designed and is not his perfect best and good. Okay. All right, since we've gotten that established now, David has multiple wives later in life, and he has multiple kids from multiple different wives. These kids are half-brothers and sisters to each other. There's a son by the name of Absalom. Absalom is a piece of work. He really is. And we find out how much of a piece of work he is because of his own lack of self-control. Like father, like son, huh? Why did Absalom get so upset? Well, you can read about Absalom in 1 Samuel 13 through chapter 18. Chapters 13 through 18. I went and re-familiarized myself with the story again this week. I read all those chapters just to kind of get that locked into my head. And... um, Absalom had a sister named Tamar. And he also had a half-brother named Amnon. Amnon saw Tamar, his half-sister, and said, wow, she's a looker. You think I'm being crass, but read the story. And Amnon began to plot, how can I get Tamar to sleep with me? It sounds gross. It's incestuous, definitely. It was not a part of God's original design either. So what was he to do? Well, here's what he did. Instead of refusing his own urges and having self-control over himself, Amnon raped Tamar. Absalom found out about it, and he became incensed with rage. Actually, once the rage died down, I want you to hear this. It says Absalom Absalom hated Amnon. He neither he neither was he he was neither you know in, in this great sense of rage toward him nor did he think kindly of him. It says he didn't think of him at all. Not really. What kind of hatred Would you have to have to have zero emotion toward a person? That's deep, deep hatred. Because if you still have a sense of anger in you, it means you care about the other person. Do you understand? 
See, he had gone beyond having any kind of emotion toward Amnon. He hated him so much that he had basically wiped him out of his thoughts altogether. Amnon was dead to him. As a matter of fact, Absalom came to the point where he started to plot and scheme as well. I'm going to kill my brother Amnon. Why should he only be dead in my mind? He deserves to be dead for real. And so he plotted and schemed and schemed and plotted and devised a plan to kill Amnon. Actually, the way Absalom did this is to have all of his siblings come and they were going to have a banquet feast together. Amnon would surely be there. And the deed was done and Amnon was killed. The rest of the siblings went running for their lives because they're like, he's insane. Story got back, or the word got back to David. David mourns and weeps for Amnon. But then Absalom, what is he to do? David didn't want to have anything to do with him. He loved Absalom. He loved Amnon. He loved all of his kids. But he refused to see Absalom. And so Absalom stayed away for about two years until one of David's servants, one of his officials said, why don't we bring him home? He deserves to be here with his family. And so David consented finally. Absalom comes home, but David still refuses to see him face to face. And so Absalom, who thinks he did a righteous deed by killing his half-brother Amnon for the horrible assault on Tamar, feels rejection from his father. What's he to do? You can kind of have a little bit of pity for Absalom, can't you? But what does he do? Well, here's what he does. He begins to talk to the community. Absalom does. My father David's not a great king, is he? He's not able to do for you what I can. Let me, let me help you out. I'll help settle cases for you. I can do this. I can do that. And he starts to foment dissension with the people against his father David. David, somewhat unaware of this, just continues on as normal until the fatal moment where Absalom decides to raise up and rise up against his father. So David then flees into the wilderness where he was so familiar for all of those years running from Saul. And in the wilderness, he pins Psalm 3 and 4. And Psalm 4 reads like this. Answer me when I call you, O God, who declares me innocent. I want you to know what, is, what has happened in David's life up to this moment? He's been an adulterer, he's been a murderer, and he's not been a great father. But what is he innocent of? He's innocent of this. God, you declare me innocent. I mean, I wouldn't even strike down Saul because he was your anointed. I now stand in the role of that anointed and if you didn't want me in this role, you would have wiped me out by this point. 
by your own hand and your own resources. But God, where are you? The one who declares me innocent, free from my troubles. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long will, pe- how long will you people ruin my reputation? Who's he talking to now? Who has he fled from? He's fled from Absalom. And those that Absalom has turned against David. He's marred David's reputation among the people by lies, by schemes. How long will people ruin my reputation? How long will you make groundless accusations? How long will you continue your lies? You can be sure of this. The Lord set apart the godly for himself. Who is he referring to? Himself. Well, that sounds like a pompous statement to make. We'll get to that in just a second. The Lord will answer when I call him. Again, sounds like a pompous statement until you understand the context. Don't sin. He's now reflecting back to the people who have marred his reputation, who are spreading lies about him. Don't sin by letting anger control you. Think about it overnight and remain silent. Offer sacrifices in the right spirit and trust the Lord. Many people will say, who will show us better times? Who are these people? Well, there are many who fled with David. Not just soldiers and men, but many who stayed loyal to David, who fled with him into the wilderness for their own lives. You have given me greater joy than those who have abundant harvests of grain and new wine. In peace, I will lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, will keep me safe. He's on the run again from an enemy who seeks to destroy. And yet he can say with a clear conscience, I'm going to lie down and sleep like a baby because you are with me, O Lord. What's the key point? The key point is this, don't let sin, or don't sin by letting anger control you. That is a character trait of patience. When we do not have patience, we do not have self-control. And a spiral of depression and destruction result from that. You may think you're doing the right thing in anger, but be very very careful because anger often leads us down some very treacherous pathways there is a righteous anger and that anger is very very rare and is only to be wielded by the person who truly is connected with the heavenly father through Jesus Christ and it's not to be wielded as a weapon to destroy but as a weapon to turn people's hearts back toward God. So what does David do? He calls out to God. Biblical scholar Albert Barnes writes, the word hear, like hear, O Lord, 
in such cases is always used in the sense of to listen to or to hear favorably or to attend to. Hence, in this literal sense, it's always true that God hears all that is said. He doesn't just let it go in one ear and out the other. God hears it, listens to it. When we pray, God listens. When our hearts are completely turned to him, his ear is attentive to us. David knew this because David experienced it. He had seen it. He had tried it. He knew the intimacy with his God, the Father, whom he knew as his shepherd. The meaning is, Hear and answer me, or grant me what I ask. David isn't merely praying out of a habit or superstition. Catch, catch this. He is calling out to God in a sincere plea for him to be attentive to David's petition. Have you ever prayed to God like that? Or do you pray generic prayers? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Do you pray over your food? God bless this food and those that have prepared it. Amen. See, the kind of prayer that God desires is the kind of prayer that comes from a heart of sincerity and not just a heart that's memorized a few lines. This isn't meant to convict you or make you feel guilty. Actually, meant to convict. It's not meant to make you feel guilty. The reality is we get this way in our personal relationships on earth, don't we? This is why marriages fall apart. Because we go through these rote motions with each other. We get, we get in the habit of just doing instead of being with each other. And we miss each other along the way. And we find out that we've drifted so far that the chasm is so wide, we see it as an impossibility to bridge that we just would rather throw in the towel than to build that bridge back. We do this with God. You come to Christ, you got this excitement, this newness of a relationship, and you're praying because you believe he's there, you know he's there, he is real as real can be. But after the newness of the relationship wears off, the prayer becomes fainter and fainter, and we become busier and busier, and the excitement wanes. It's the diligence of being together and doing the relationship together that counts, not the feelings or the emotions of the relationship. I've tried to instruct our kids, and so is Sarah Lee through the years, that love is not a feeling or an emotion. It is accentuated by feelings and emotions. So whenever you don't feel love, it doesn't mean you don't have love, because love is an action. It is something of the will that we do and not something we feel. This is why in the New Testament, Jesus says to love one another, and he uses the word agape every time. Why? Because that is not a love or a, a love of feeling and emotion, this ushy-gushy butterfly kind of thing. This is a love that is an act of unconditional quality. It is sacrificial, and it is selfless. See, I think another reason why relationships wane or fall apart is because 
We feel like we have fallen out of love with each other, or we say, I don't love you anymore. The reason you don't love anymore is because you won't allow yourself to love anymore. It's not because you don't feel the emotion of it. Oh God, hear my cry. I know you're there. You have been in the past. Come through for me today. No, Lord, I'm not perfect, but I am innocent because you have forgiven me. You've given me new life. You've given me hope. See, the enemy would love nothing more for you to not call out to God because you know the sin of your past. Would you be as bold enough to stand before God and declare your innocence knowing you are a sinner? See, the only reason David could do that is because he was fully repentant of his past. And he knew that God didn't hold that against him anymore. He had set him free from that. There is no curse or condemnation for the broken heart. David even says that. And so now he looks forward and he looks up to the one who declares him innocent. And David reminds him, remember, I'm innocent. Hear my cry, O Lord. David asserts his authority to God. What authority has David been given? What authority has David been given? The authority he's been given is to be king of Israel. Has he been the perfect king? No. Has he been a good king? Yeah, but not perfect. You see, the thing that differentiated David from Saul and most other kings that came after was that when David fell flat on his face because of his own stupidity, he would get back up and continue to head in the direction of God. Do you catch this? So this is what we call grace in the body of Christ. See, if there was no grace, then God would leave us there on our face. He'd say, no, don't even get up. Don't even try to come my way. Just forget it. You've messed up too many times. I'm done with you. But see, that's not the kind of God who created everything, who, 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 who loves us. The kind of God who loves us gives more than just second chances. We see Jesus and Peter talking. And what does Peter come to him and say? Hey, master, let me ask you a question. If somebody sins against me seven times and I forgive them, is that okay? What does Jesus respond? No, 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 no. Uh-uh. It's not okay. Peter's like, I didn't think so. It's 70 times seven. Ooh. So what you're saying is somebody comes to me repentant and really wants my forgiveness, then no matter how many times they come to me, I need to forgive them. Yeah. And do you see what Jesus is modeling for Peter and what David knew by heart even before Peter came onto the scene? Is that God is a forgiving and a loving God. He doesn't despise the repentant heart. He welcomes it with open arms. We look at Luke chapter 15. We see Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, and he shows us the same imagery there. 
doesn't matter how far you go or how many times you mess up, the Lord is still willing to say, come home. But he also gives a caveat. Don't sin anymore. See, a lot of our newfangled churches today like to eliminate that piece. Come home and live as you please. No, that's not how that is. It's sin no more. Because it's what sin, it's sin that got you in this place in the first place. It's, it's sin that separated you from the Father in the first place. It's sin that drove you away from the home as a thief and a robber. But it's grace that brings you home because you know there's goodness back there. And if you've heard or experienced anything less from the church, I apologize. As a representative and as a leader within the Christian church, I apologize if you've been wounded, hurt, scarred, abused by the church or by any individual within the church. It's never how it should be. But let me tell you, every person that sits in the pews of every church across this globe is a broken individual. The only thing that differentiates the believer from the non-believer is redemption in Jesus Christ. Nothing any one of us could do can make that different. Jesus did that through the cross. And so David now knows God alone has full authority over everything and everybody. And God has placed me in a position of authority, and I take that position of authority seriously. And so, Lord, now I assert that authority, not with an arrogant, arrogant pompous display of, I will kill them all. Instead, Lord, I'm beckoning to you. You've given me this authority. You help me out. Help me to know the right thing to do and not to abuse that authority. Help me to be a grace giver and not somebody who goes on a run of vengeance to destroy my enemies. The Lord set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will answer when I call him because I trust and I know and I've seen it time and time again. The Lord will answer my prayer. And see, David knew that the Lord would answer his prayer in his own time and in his own way. David wasn't trying to pigeonhole God. Do you understand what I'm saying? What would happen if you were anointed king? You would assume that you would ascend to the throne immediately. David was anointed king, and we have about a seven to ten year span before he ascended the throne. David had been given the promise and the authority before he could take it. See, David had seen in his past, the Lord is good to follow through on his promises. And it may not always be the way I expect it to, but he has always come through. And so now he's on the run again for an undescribed period of time. He doesn't know how long he's going to be on the run and so he's calling out to God again in a very similar situation. And he says, God, you've given me authority. It's you who could take it away. But as I continue to stand godly before you, and you have given me authority, you'll answer when I call to you. Thirdly, he warns about the sin of anger's control. Ephesians 4, 26 to 27, Paul writes, don't let sin 
or don't sin by letting anger control you. Guess where he quoted that from? Psalm 4. Who is is Paul talking to? He's talking to the church at Ephesus. It's a church plant. He says, don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're angry. For anger gives a foothold to who? The devil. Anger gives a foothold to the devil. How many of you have ever been angry? How many of you at home have ever been angry? Yeah, I think we all have. How many of you have ever been angry and it's not been a righteous anger? (laughs) Right? (laughs) That's me. Bruce Barton explains that the Bible doesn't tell us that we shouldn't feel angry. But it points out that it is important to handle our anger properly. We must not indulge our angry feelings or let them lead to pride, hatred, or self-righteousness. Anger is an all-too-human response to to difficult situations and adversarial people in our lives. However, anger must not control us, he writes. Anger is a result of the fall in Genesis 3. Prior to sin entering the world through disobedience, there really was no place or purpose for anger. Anger did not exist as an emotion prior to the fall. Think about that. What was there to be angry about? Sin didn't exist. So anger, if at least not a bad emotion, is not an emotion that ever existed before the fall. It was created and came into existence through that. This is why it's not bad in and of itself, it's what you do with it and how you let it control you that makes it bad. Anger can be very, very destructive. Due to the sins, due to sin's effect on the world, the hard side of emotions were birthed into existence. Sadness, sorrow, and yes, Anger, though not bad in and of themselves, are a result of the perversion of God's perfect design and creation. When we get to heaven, what are the things we are promised? It's a place where there's no tears, sadness, sorrow, death, pain. There's no worry there. There's no anger or rage or bitterness or resentment. There's no unforgiveness. It's a place that's determined by this overarching sense of love unadulterated, unencumbered, and not withheld. Anger at sin and evil and injustice is not wrong or bad, but taken to an extreme where it's all pervasive would not only be unhealthy, but damaging to individuals and relationships. The great reformer and evangelist John Wesley wrote, anger at sin is not evil, but we should feel only pity toward the sinner. If we are angry at the person as well as the fault, We sin. Do you catch what he's saying? This is where we get that be angry at the sin and not the sinner. You heard of that before? I'm sure you have. Because when we become angry at the sinner, guess what happens? We sin. If anybody deserves the right to be angry, it's God and God alone. Why? Because we have messed it up. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard. Guess what that means? You and I have. 
And so when we become angry, are we angry but yet pity the sinner? Do we consider the source? Do we realize how fallen and far away they might be from God rather than focus our energies and anger and rage toward them, we focus it on the real enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. There is one enemy who has allowed to have gained control of the world, and he is called the prince of this world. But we know a king that is higher than the prince of this world who overcame the wilderness temptations, who said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing as he hung on the cross, who at the last breath said, it is finished, not his death, but the reason he came, which was destroy, and well, not to just only destroy, but to bring the proper solution to the problem of sin and death in this world. If anybody could have been angry, Jesus could have been. He was hanging on a cross, bloodied, bruised, naked before the whole world. And he had pity on us by saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Amazing. Lastly, he declares a clear conscience defined by peace because of God's protection. Oh, that we would have a clear conscience. See, the enemy would have us believe that because of the sins of our past, they've determined the course of our future. That because of the failures, the mistakes, the ruin of the choices that we've made, that we are on an inevitable course defined by brokenness. But Jesus says in John chapter 8, if the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. But I don't think many within, I'm not, I'm not going to talk about the world today. I don't think many in the church today believe that. If you don't feel free, the question is why? Is there something that's between you and God? Is there something, is there some sin that's unrepentant to the Lord your God? Because see, if you stand as a believer in Christ today saying, I know Jesus loves me, that he died on the cross for my sins, and he has forgiven me of all my sins. If he sets you free, guess what? You're free indeed. Now, you may still understand, you may still deal with consequences of past behaviors, but you can deal with it with grace rather than this self-loathing. Okay? Because those things don't have to define you. They didn't define David. He lived with the repercussions of it. Absalom didn't like him very much. Absalom measured his own life against his own father, David. Do you see what's going on here? Well, I'm better than my dad. Now, we don't read that he said that, but let's be honest. If we're pulling the family dynamic out, and we're looking at the dysfunction that existed in David's family, and we look at the ramifications and consequences of the choices that David made with multiple women he called his wives, and even one he took that was somebody else's wife and had her husband killed, Absalom maybe would have become a little bitter. 
There are more functional homes today where kids become bitter toward their parents. Now consider Absalom. Well, I, I never committed adultery. And the, actually, the law of Moses says that we should stone someone to death for sexual immorality. What was I doing wrong by killing my brother Amnon? Do you see how we can easily manipulate the situation in our heads to justify our behavior to do something we shouldn't do? And to lack the self-control to withhold doing that which anger drives us toward. See, David had come to grips with what he had done. He had surrendered that to God, and he didn't allow it to mark him for the rest of his life. Yeah, he struggled with the consequences of it. Yes, there was still pain in what he had done, but he stood innocent before God. That's why he could say at the end of this psalm, I have peace that passes understanding, basically. I can lay my head down tonight here in the wilderness, and I can rest with a clear conscience because I know that I'm an innocent man and that God hears my cries and that he is good and he will bring something amazing out of this situation. I don't know what it is, but I know he's going to bring it through. See, David was a man of self-control talking to men who lacked it because he had been there, done that, and had the t-shirt to prove that having no self-control will lead to ruin in your life. Oh, and he begged Absalom, please don't do this. Don't do this. Don't let anger control. Don't sin by letting anger control you. A traveler in Ceylon, Sri Lanka, tells the following story. As I was dining at home, I was startled to hear the hostess ask her servant to place a bowl of milk on the deerskin table beside her chair. I knew at once there was a cobra in the room, for they prefer milk to anything else. We also knew that a hasty movement meant death. So we sat like statues. Soon, to our amazement, a cobra uncoiled from my hostess's ankle and swiftly guided glided toward the milk, where it was quickly killed. What a triumph of self-control over the external. But if we use that same quiet trust in Christ as this woman did in the bowl of milk when the serpent of evil approaches us, internal triumphs over him would be more numerous than they are now. How many, you know, the whole moral to that story is how many of you are more impulsive and reactive than proactive? I know I struggle with that. I want to do the right thing. I'm going to, I'm going to fix this problem. Do you know what David did? He said, Lord, you know my plight. You know that I'm innocent. Hear my cry, answer my prayer. Where do you go whenever bad things happen? Do you go to a solution? 
Do you go to the drawing board? Do you pull out the draft table and try to figure out a solution to the issue that you're dealing with? When you hear the problem of somebody else, do you try to fix it really quick? You see, sometimes you have to sit in the pain for a while, knowing that God is good, that he hears your cry, and that in his due time, he will bring something good out of it. Sometimes you have to sit in the sorrow. See, David, when he had sinned with Bathsheba, when he'd gotten called out for it, she was still pregnant. She gave birth, but the Lord had told him, the baby's going to die. Do you know what David did? He knew that God sometimes can change his mind in certain situations because he'd seen that happen before too. And so he diligently fasted and prayed for just over a week until he got news that the baby had died. And it says he got up, that he cleaned himself off, he put on new clothes, and he went to eat. Not because he wasn't saddened by the sound that his child had died, but because he knew that God's ways are perfect even when we don't understand them. That God's answer in that situation was, no, this is what's going to happen. And you won't understand it right now. But trust me, it's good. How can the death of a child be for good? Do you think that child is in hell? No. That child conceived in adultery is with the Father and with the Savior, enjoying the bounty and the fruits of heaven. But David had to suffer through that because of his own choices. So whatever happened to Absalom... <laughs> I hate to say it's a comical but tragic. It's one of those dark comedies. 2 Samuel chapter 18, starting with verse 9. There was a great battle. There was a great battle against David's army. It's kind of the final battle that ushered David back to this place of power and authority as king over Israel. And in that battle, something happens. During the battle, verse 9, Absalom happened to come upon some of David's men. He tried to escape on his mule, but as he rode beneath a thick, the, uh, uh, the thick branches of a great tree, his hair got stuck in the tree. What? Well, if you read earlier in the story, actually, uh, Absalom was known for these beautiful wavy locks. Dark, long, heavy. It says when they cut it, it was super heavy, right? <clears throat> and so he's riding along on his mule, trying to escape from David's soldiers, and he rode under a group of trees whose branches hung low, and his hair got stuck in the branches. The mule kept going and left him dangling in the air. One of David's men saw what had happened and told Joab, I saw Absalom dangling, dang, dangling, bing, dangling from a tree. <clears throat> I, again, I'm very visual. 
And I'm seeing Absalom going, swinging and, you know. And I shouldn't because this is his demise. I told you this is a dark comedy. Can you make this stuff up? Hey, I saw Absalom dangling from a tree by his hair. Joab, the head of David's armies. What? Joab demanded? I mean, he's, he's kind of like, nah. Are you serious? You saw him there and you didn't kill him? I would have rewarded you with 10 pieces of silver and a hero's belt. I wouldn't kill the king's son for even a thousand pieces of silver, the man replied to Joab. We all heard the king say to you that Abishai and Ittai, uh, uh, to, to you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, please spare my young Absalom. David had already asked, don't kill him when you catch him. And if I had betrayed the king by killing his son and the king and the king would certainly find out who did it, you yourself would be the first to abandon me. You see what he's saying? If I had actually done that, and it, and it would have gotten back to the king, you would have sold me out. Enough of this nonsense, Joab said. And then he took three daggers and plunged them into Absalom's heart as he dangled, still alive, in the great tree. Ten of Joab's young armor bearers then surrounded Absalom and killed him. So he was still alive after daggers through the chest. Then Joab blew the ram's horn, and his men returned from chasing the army of Israel. They threw Absalom's body into a deep pit in the forest and piled a great heap of stones over it. And all of Israel fled to their homes. As their worship team comes forward. Absalom let anger control him and thus anger destroyed him do you catch this anger ultimately makes a mockery of you uncontrolled anger will leave you exposed dangling from a tree of your own making like the deadly cobra around your heart have you allowed anger to control you? Are you a slave to anger? Has it caused your heart to become hardened and cold? And if so, it's time to change. Don't let anger control you any longer. The poisonous root of anger will destroy you in the end. We all have reason to be angry. But what are you angry about? And is it worth truly being angry about? And you say, well, yes, it is. Are you angry about the situation? Are you angry about the sin? Are you angry at the person? Because when you start to focus anger on a person is when you sin and you give a foothold to the devil who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. This is why anger should be a very rare occurrence, especially within the church. How are you dealing with anger today? Is self-control a character trait of yours? Is patience a character trait? If somebody were to see you and know you, would they describe you as a person of, a person of patience and self-control? I hope so. Because that's what the rest of the world sees. 
If you're struggling with anger today, or if you know somebody who is, you can come to my right and pray, and somebody will pray with you. Maybe you just don't know how to dispose of the anger and the hatred that you have in your heart that's leading you to some dark places in your mind and maybe even to some dark actions, if you're being honest. You need to be let, set free from that. You, you need to be delivered from that. Maybe you don't want anybody to pray with you. You want to come and deal with it on your own. You can come to the altar to my left, your right, and do that. If you're at home, you can kneel. You can kneel by your couch. If you're in the car, please don't kneel. Pull over. All right. Suffice it to say, the Lord desires a broken and a contrite heart. He desires a heart fully surrendered to him. And he desires to deal with the problems in your life with you, not absent from you. Let's pray. Father, take us back to the garden where anger, sorrow, sadness didn't exist. Remind us to see through that lens, that place at the end of every day of creation where you said it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. Remind us that there is an enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And it's not even our worst enemy on the face of the earth that is a human, but rather the spiritual uh, war that we wrestle against is not one of flesh, but of darkness in the spiritual realms. Remind us as believers in Christ, to be focused on the right battle with the right weapons of war, the body armor of God. And remind us that the beginning of that battle starts on our knees in prayer. Set us free from anger and rage and bitterness. Remind us through the lips of your son Jesus that we are forgiven that we are given a second chance and that we too should forgive and give second chances. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we close? Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.